Welcome back to the Megatherium Club podcast, everybody. I'm Sean, and I'm here with Zach and Spencer. How are you guys doing today? Oh, just not too shabby. (laughs) Good. So last time, uh, last episode, we talked about some really big creatures, really large, whether that was long or mass-wise or large relative to some abilities such as flying. Uh, We thought this time we'd switch gears and talk about some really small creatures, critters that hopefully you guys may have never heard of before. And I want to discuss or start this discussion with a group of cute little furballs in the clade Afrotheria. But what is a clade? And what is Afrotheria? Both are good questions and play an important role in making these animals extra special in my opinion. So a clade of organisms is a monophyletic group of organisms on a phylogenetic tree. In layman's terms, think of a evolutionary tree. You see all those branches leading from one creature to the next, and you know that ones further down the tree are descendants from ones higher up the tree, and you can get a larger picture of how everything is related. So a clade, or monophyletic group, is all the organisms and their relatives descended from one common ancestor. An example of another clade is the apes. All modern-day apes, such as humans, gorillas, chimps, etc., and all their ancestors trace back to one common ancestor. And yes, humans are apes. I guess this is a bit of a sidetrack, but um, we talked about things that grind my gears in the past, and another is (laughs) movies titled, like, Planets of the Apes, or insulting each other, calling each other apes. Like, that just annoys me because we're all apes it's already the planet of the apes why do you guys does that bother you guys not no not really my gears are not ground oh <laughs> uh i'm by i love those movies so <laughs> i love the movies too but it's just it's silly i mean it well i think we have to define who Wait. actually the planet belongs to are we apes though? Uh, does, yeah. Oh yes. Oh We're yes. Great apes. We're primates. Pri- primates, but are we apes? Yes. Yeah, I think we're technically great apes. Yeah. Yep. Oh. Yeah. Um, and then, do we actually control the planet, or does it belong to bacterium oh, or well. fungus? We're also outnumbered by dinosaurs currently, so we could also say it's still a planet of dinosaurs. That's true. Yeah. Or ants, because we're outnumbered by ants. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, just true. just ants alone. <laughs> Unless you want to get into the whole like, who, what species is having the most ecological impact right now, negative or positive, mostly negative. But yeah, okay. So back to my animals and Afrotheria. I can promise everyone knows an animal in this group, or or several. Can each of you name an animal in Afrotheria off the top of your heads? No, I'm not sure what Afrotheria is. Could you please, uh, could you please enlighten me, Spencer? How about how about you? Oh, I was hoping you weren't going to call on me there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> call Afrotheria. Um, not off the top of my head. Okay, okay. So I know you guys all know what animals are in here, but maybe you just didn't know the clade title. So this group includes elephants, aardvarks, tenrecs. Arthur. I knew that. Arthur. Arthur. Arthur from PBS. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yep. That goofy little goober. (laughs) And uh, so aardvarks, tenrecs, hyraxes, golden moles, which aren't true moles. Um, Otter shrews, which aren't true shrews or otters. Sea cows and my animal of choice today, the elephant shrew, which also aren't true shrews. Modern day technology and genetic research unveiled the close relationship between these animals that superficially have minimal to zero similarities. They do, though, all live or originally live in Africa, hence the clade name Afrotheria. And Afrotheria diverged into many different types of animals to take advantage of ecological niches that animals elsewhere had already filled. The, the golden shrews and elephant shrews are insectivores, and as you can imagine, they play a significantly different role in the environment than the massive herbivores that we know so well, the elephants, or the uh, marine, I guess you call marine, like sea cows, they're marine. They're in salt water. Yeah. So obviously they play a different ecological role than those as well. 
Um, there, there are 20 species of elephant shrew, and these things are also called sengis, 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 S-E-N-G-I-E-S, um, and they're under the family Macroskeledae, and they range from the giants of the family that weigh around one and a half pounds to the smallest that weigh between one and one and a half ounces. Um, and, and if you guys haven't looked these up yet, please do, because they are as cute as they get. At first glance, they do look like a mouse with a weird phallic nose. So I understand if some people <laughs> think they may be, maybe they aren't cute. Uh, maybe some people don't it's like the mice. <laughs> They're adorable. So wait, so Sean, you're you're telling me that they look like a shrew? Well, I think they look like a mouse. Well, don't shrews look like mice with phallic noses? True, but they also shrews don't have the ears that mice have. Oh, that's true. And they're more no, like right. laying flat to the ground. And may, I mean, I'm sure people out there can argue against this. Is this? Yeah. If there's any shrewologists out there, hit my line. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, at first glance, a lot of people are going to think a shrew is also a mouse unless they've had experience handling shrews. Like a lot of people may have never come face to face with a shrew before. I got bit by a shrew. <laughs> How did you get bit by one? Dude, aren't they venomous? Yeah. Um, they, <laughs> not all species are venomous, but some are. Two. Well, yes, them and platypus. And there's another venomous. There's a there's there? a primate that is venomous. Yeah, the, yeah, that's what I thought. But I think, uh, but yeah, no, I I got bit by a shrew. I I handled shrews when I did mammalogy stuff a few times because we we they were bycatch. But the time I got bit was actually when I was doing research up in the Yukon on squirrels, and we had I was up there in mostly winter, and so we had snowshoe tracks that we would follow, and a shrew had somehow gotten into the track you know they live during the winter underneath the snow the snow cover where it's about 40 degrees fahrenheit so it doesn't quite freeze so they can make these highway track systems with other uh small animals and one had gotten out of that and into the snowshoe track and that had been patted down so it was hard so it couldn't get back out and i grabbed it uh and i wasn't i was wearing fingerless gloves um for the squirrels and it bit me right on the uh, right on my middle finger um he wasn't happy at me, but I shoved him in a hole and he was fine. So, <laughs> yeah. but no, no venom. And uh, I, I don't think those ones are venomous. You don't get to be like shrew man now. I don't. I don't. I, I do know somebody who was bit by a venomous shrew and he said it felt like he was kind of high all day, but like also kind of nauseous, like nauseous. So mm. Weird. I just guess don't recommend it unless if you like unless you want to get high together yeah <laughs> so <laughs> anyway uh yeah uh there's there's my little tangent for you okay oh I, that was a very cool story and i think i learned something today i didn't know they were venomous i knew other mammals were but i didn't know shrews were uh elephant shrews are not venomous sorry guys um but the extra special elephant shrew i wanted to talk about today was macroskeletes proboscideus proboscideus man i'm getting better but still suck at these uh, scientific names uh but is aka the short-eared elephant shrew and is only four inches from head to tail and weigh 1.4 to 2.1 ounces and to put that in perspective because that is small but just how small is that i looked up the weight of golf balls and these do vary between brands by hundredths of an ounce, but I will say they weigh 1.6 ounces on average. And so M. proboscideus can weigh less than a golf ball. And these elephant shrews can fit my hand and basically feel like I'm holding next to nothing. So they're, they're like the size of a mouse, but these things are related to elephants, which is, to, to me, what, an impressive thing that they're... That small, but uh, also related to some of the largest land animals ever. Well, not ever. I guess alive today, because there's plenty of things in the past way bigger. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, today we think about them as these, these massive behemoths. I mentioned they have a tail that helps give them this mouse appearance. Uh, they also have varied brown fur with whitish rings around the eyes and upper lip. 
They do have the long slender snout, symbolic of elephant shrews, but this species, theirs is a bit shorter, more tapered than others, maybe less phallic. And no, they cannot grasp onto things like elephants. Sorry if that's what you're picturing, just a mouse with an elephant trunk. <laughs> they have ears like a mouse, but also not crazily different from larger animals of Afrotheria. If you just want to think about them being scaled way down, you know, you, you think of an elephant and they have huge bodies, but they also have relatively large ears too for their body size. These big things that like flap on the sides of their body, but... Are there are their ears hairy or are they No, no. I mean there's probably some hair, but they're thin. They're they're very mouse right, mouse like yeah. ears, but they yeah. just okay. you know they look big to me. They're not they're not shrew like ears that really lack those exterior ears because they're like underground and stuff. Um, but yeah. So one surprising bit of info, these elephant shrews have gestation periods of fifty six days. And this sent me on a whole other tangent because I compared that to a mouse that has a gestation period of 19 to 21 days. So these things, about the same size of a mouse, has gestation periods two to three times as long. And true shrews have a gestation period of about 24 to 25 days. So, you know, they're much more mouse-like on the rodent side. Obviously, elephant shrews do not have a gestation period of an elephant time period of 22 months. But it is interesting, though that they've evolved to fulfill this very similar niche as mice or shrews, but their gestation periods are that much longer. And, you know, 56 days isn't that much, but relative, it's, you know, two to three times. So I wonder, I don't know if you're about to answer this, <laughs> yep. but... <laughs> you, you can ask uh, it, you can ask it. Well, I maybe it'll, I won't try to answer it, I guess, but uh, do they know why it's longer? Oh, <laughs> Is that... I might explain that, but... Okay, okay. Um, yeah, we'll get a little bit further. I think I have a good explanation for that, though. So the females can have five to six litters a year, and these cute little critters have a monogamous relationship, which means they mate for life. And another interesting bit of info when comparing them to rodents is mice do not have monogamous relationships. They just breed and breed and breed. To add to this lesson in elephant shrew reproduction, their litters are only one to two individuals. That might be due to the fact that these shrews come out fully ready to take on life, meaning they have fur, unlike baby mice, they're open-eyed, and able to run almost immediately, um, not unlike elephants. And I really say all this because these animals really made me just go, huh? As, as I was researching them, <laughs> because they share traits, in my opinion with both R and K selected species. And for anyone that doesn't know, R and K selection are terms to describe animals' reproductive strategies. If you have a lot of babies that grow up really fast, that require minimal parental care, then you are an R-selected species. These have a high turnover rate. As a species, their survival strategies pump out a lot of individuals quickly. They can't all die out if they are constantly putting out more right is that i mean you guys step in if you want to say something there i don't know if you guys have a different opinion of our selected species no i mean the idea is yeah just like you said you have lots and knowing lots will die but some will survive and on the opposite side of the thing of the strategies i guess if you will uh, we have case selected species these give birth or lay eggs to a few offspring. They may take a while to mature, tend to have a de dependency on its parents for a while, but also have like the ability to learn and have a longer lifespan. The strategy is more quality over quantity, if you will. Elephants, definitely a K strategy. Mice are selected. Uh, but elephant shrews have qualities of both, which uh, they have a few offspring, so K, but their babies are establishing their own home ranges only 15 days after birth and that i think that kind of explains your question earlier where their bit longer gestation period pretty much allows them to come out ready to go don't you don't you think that answers that question yeah it sounds like they're giving their their offspring a lot more resources as compared to what a mouse would mm -hmm. 
and mice tend to only live 12 to 18 months. And while little is known about the average lifespan of, a, of an elephant shrew, one did live up to four years in what I think is captivity, but that's, you know, we won't take that into too much consideration because you know, it's captivity. Not long relative to us, but if that is, you know, comparable to a rodent, it's about you know, four times as long. And so that was my big, like, wow, these are really interesting because they share characteristics with elephants, but are, you know, mice-looking things. They're really small. And the the short-eared elephant shrew is quite territorial, and they live in pairs, and they'll actually drive others off. Um, like, the same sex will drive out same-sex individuals. They, they live in little burrows. They either make themselves or find leftover from rodents. And if I haven't made it clear yet, these things aren't rodents. Even though they look like rodents, they aren't rodents i mentioned already they eat insects but they will also take advantage of vegetation fruit seeds when available elephant shrews are also crazy fast some species reach speeds of over 17 miles an hour (laughs) compare that to a human and our average walking speed is three miles an hour and the average human tops out at running around 15 miles an hour hussein bolt you know He's a specialty class. It's 27 and a half. So Jeez. they can't beat Hussein, but they can beat almost, you know, your normal American, probably most Americans they can beat. Probably beat me. <laughs> That's fast. Yeah, definitely beat me. <laughs> Maybe in my college days, but I don't, I, can't, I don't know if I'm hitting that speeds now. Gonna need those roller blades. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even then, I, I guess we I could hit that. But on average, we skate around 11 to 13 miles an hour. So I got to be booking it to beat these things. And and they're only like the size of a golf ball. And my last little fun fact, they're all fun, about elephant shrews is that they have relatively large brains when compared, when compared to other insectivores. I think comparing this animal to the well-known rodents is fun when you see what characteristics they picked up along the way that rodents did not and... I can see the similarities between them and elephants despite the many, many years of evolutionary separation. I saw an elephant shrew when I studied abroad in East Africa. Ooh, was he super fast? Did you it see him was, for like half a second? Uh, didn't seem very long, but it wasn't one of the really little ones. It was one of the bigger, chunkier ones. The, it was the, like the giant one and a half pounds. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, giant, giant one and a half pounds. Yeah, it was pretty cool. There are some species that have really cool uh, like coat patterns, like orange and brown combinations. I don't know if that's what you saw. No, mine, mine, I it might have been a mix of kind of a brownish gray color. It wasn't, it wasn't anything like, oh my gosh, this is the most beautiful animals. Like, oh nope, that's just an elephant shrew. Oh. <laughs> uh, it's cool intrinsically because of that. And okay, now it's in the bush and bye. What what other small creatures are we going to talk about today, guys? Yeah, get ready. Buckle up, folks. Buckle up. I've been excited to talk about this episode since we created the podcast. As an entomologist, we study small things. And I uh, like to study the really small stuff. That's what I really like to do. So when, when Zach posed the large animal episode or whoever... And then we were talking about what's next. It was like, okay, let's do the smallest one so I can really talk about this. But I want to start, but when you when you Google smallest animals in the world, which I did, uh, you generally get a list of small mammals and amphibians. And I knew, I already had an idea of what I wanted to talk about in my mind, but I just wanted to see what would happen if it popped up. And it, and it didn't. And note that these lists leave off many notable branches of the kingdom animalia, specifically the arthropods and the plankton and plankton-adjacent animals. So with obvious bias, uh, I chose an insect, and I chose a family of wasps called the uh, Mimeridae, or the Mimeridae. And that's within the order of... What is it? I'm quizzing you guys. What's the order? Coleoptera. Oof. I'm just kidding. It, Hymenoptera. Hymenoptera. Oh, very good. Um, got it. <laughs> I, you quizzed us, Sean, and I quizzed you, and I'm glad as an entomologist you got it right. 
Uh, but Hymenoptera, or the order of bees, wasps, and ants. So I'm specifically talking about a wasp today. And no, this is not a wasp like a yellow jacket or a hornet that can sting you. No harm to us. But the Mimirids hold the title of the smallest insect, the smallest flying animals, and potentially, depending on your definition, the smallest fully terrestrial animal. Mimirids are commonly called fairy wasps due to their small size and delicate wings. So picture a dragonfly wing or a moth wing. Pretty large membranous surface with a kind of pretty defined edge. Now, a lot of the wings of mimirids are long stalks, some having a little bit of a flattened bulb on the end or kind of almost a teardrop shape. But a lot of them are kind of a long stalk, like a straight line almost. But then they have these radiating hairs that kind of come out the sides of it. And I'll talk about why that is in a little bit. More specifically, think of the first time that you drew like a bird feather. You just drew a line and then had a bunch of lines coming off of it. That's kind of what a lot of my myriad wings look like. Not all, but some. And the reason for this is based in physics, but again, uh, a little bit later on. So, well, actually, you know what? I'll just dive into it now. Essentially, and I don't know if you remember talking about this, Zach, in our ecology class in graduate school, but I remember that specific day because uh, I was like, wow, this is really cool. And the smaller one is, the weirder gravity and air itself interacts with you as an individual. So a squirrel can fall from the top of a tree because it's light enough to have a slow enough terminal velocity that can't end in damage to the squirrel. The, I think the terminal velocity of a squirrel is like 12 and a half miles per hour, which is not fast enough to actually make the squirrel squish on the ground. So it falls from a tree, doesn't matter the height, it just lands on the ground and can climb back up. Hold up, hold up. What if we dropped it from a plane? Doesn't matter. No way. It will, it will only ever reach terminal velocity at 12 and a half miles per hour. So we can just throw them out of planes and they live. Yeah. Now it's going to die because of other issues like fear, <laughs> uh, probably. But theoretically, you could throw a squirrel out of a plane and it will survive the fall. Just a side note, the Megatherium Club does not advocate for the <laughs> any no. abuse of animals. <laughs> yes. Please do not go much... throw a squirrel out of a plane. <laughs> This is all hypothetical. <laughs> all hypothetical. Uh, I did see a squirrel fall from about 40 foot once, and I gasped because I was I had enough time to gasp while it fell. It smacked on the ground and then immediately ran back up the tree. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so – and it's the same reason. So you can you can drop many insects from pretty much any distance, and again, they'll be fine for the same reason. And in, in addition, insects also have a, a tough exoskeleton and, you know, they're going to be super duper fine, you know, no matter what. Now, another PSA, uh, do not specifically go out and drop animals. Um, and specifically, if you own a tarantula, don't drop your tarantula because they can die if you drop them. They, they do have an exoskeleton because they are arthropods, but it's pretty short or short, soft. And you can't damage them. Specifically, their abdomens can explode uh, if you drop them from like four feet, uh, which would kill that poor little critter. So don't drop tarantulas. When you, uh, when you shrink down to the level of my mirrored wasps, <laughs> this is where it gets really cool. You interact with air at essentially the molecular level. Now, you can wave your hand through the air and you can feel, you know, you know, wind, right? You, you can feel the air. But my mirids, they're interacting with almost the molecules themselves of the air. And so at that level, air becomes viscous like a fluid. And so their wings aren't for flying. Their wings are for swimming through the air. So when you were describing the wings, I pulled up a picture and was like, uh -huh. these things look like oars, yeah, like yeah, they look they look like a canoe with, with like a big set of oars hanging out the side. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, the smaller you get, the more, the less the more stockish it becomes. 
because the smaller you get, the less gravity pulls you down and the more you can just lift yourself, or not lift, you can just move through the air like a liquid. But yeah, they look like an oar because they're literally paddling through a viscous water, a viscous air. Um, so yeah, they're essentially paddling through the air is exactly what they're doing. That's a really good comparison. actually. Very cool. Now let's talk actual numbers in terms of size here. There's one specific species that, that dominates the, the smallest of the mimirids and therefore the smallest of the smallest. And it's the, the genus is Dicopomorpha and the species name is Ecmaterigis, which that I wrote it out phonetically and that's as, that's as best as it's gonna get. Um, but essentially, they're the reigning champions of the smallest insects. Females measure at around 550 micrometers or about a half a millimeter long. And males are a staggering 139 micrometers or about 0.1 millimeters long. So the males are about five times smaller than the females are. Males are also wingless, which isn't uncommon in a lot of my myriads. Um, so they're smaller. Uh, they don't fly around. How, and so, how small is that, though? Is that like pin or pencil? Think about the a ruler. You know, the black line on a ruler. The black line itself is about a millimeter across. Mm. So a tenth of that black line oh my is about how big a male, <laughs> a male of these wasps are. They are visible to the human eye if you have them against a stark background, like a white piece of paper. But if you actually were to view any details on it and know that you have is an animal, you would need a powerful microscope in order to do so. Zach, I don't remember if you rem uh, if you remember looking through the s through the samples in our taxonomy class in grad school, but we'd see every once in a while like the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest little fly, you know, wasp. And then in the legs of that would be a mimirid. So you'd picture the smallest wasp that you can think of. And then inside the legs of that stuck like a net would be a mimirid. And oh that's how God. you'd find mimirids is they would be mixed in with other wasps kind of trapped together. I have a few in my personal collection because I like point mounting, which is pointing the smallest of the insects. And so I made it a personal preference to get the smallest of the small so you would you would like that oh yeah i mean i spent how many years looking through microscopes <laughs> looking for these tiny little wasps whether it was at the museum or in grad school and uh yeah i just got accustomed to it and i liked finding them and the challenge of pointing them on the end of a piece of paper <laughs> uh you know gluing their tiny little bodies where the drop of glue is 10 times the size of them <laughs> So I feel like you'd be better off with a microscope slide. Yes, they do. They do have microscope slides for them as well, but you can point mount them. Um, is it common? Because I felt like extra small things no. just got put in the vials of what, ethanol or whatever. Ethanol. Yeah. I mean, some people do that. You can you can do whatever you want with them. Most people probably do the vials, but no one. But you them? risk breaks it. <laughs> Some people do pin them. No. Um, yes, myself included. Where so. do you buy pins for that? Wouldn't you just you don't? Squish so it? you point mount them. No, I'm saying so, I want to see someone pin it though. Like oh, I'll sh I'll give you I'll I'll give you I'll send you a picture of mine after the end of the podcast. Does it have a pin through it? No, so it's a point mount. No, so I know, but I, I was making a joke that someone should pin. Oh, it. <laughs> oh, oh, pin it, pin it. Yeah, I have, I have micro pins, but they are, they would, they're larger than a. Well, they're about a millimeter, so they would absolutely obliterate it. <laughs> you just glue like half the half the wasp on the front side of the pin, and the other half on the back side. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what you do. Um, yeah, no, they're 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 fascinating little things. So now you have to ask, what is the daily life of something this small? I've already mentioned that they're wasps, but they're specifically what we refer to as a parasitoid wasp. And so a parasitoid, we can compare that to a predator and we can compare that to a parasite. 
A parasite is something that latches onto a host or into a host. Think of tapeworm. And the idea isn't to kill the host because the host is providing you the essential nutrients uh, for your life and to be able to reproduce and pass along your genetic code to the next generation that will go infect more creatures. Something like fleas are parasites, you know, blood-sucking parasites. A predator is something that hunts down food for itself. Now there's, you know, you can argue parental care or youth sociality or pride living with cats where they share it, but essentially adults are killing the food for themselves. Parasitoids, they are kind of a mixture of both, but maybe a little bit more on the parasitoid or parasite side where a parasitoid will lay an egg inside of either either on an adult, most of the time it's a larva or the eggs of other insects. And, uh, you know, we can talk about all the different types of parasitism that exist, but essentially the offspring then hatch, eat the whatever it was laid in from the inside out, pupate inside and emerge as an adult. They spend their whole childhood um, essentially within the host that they were laid in. The host does eventually die. So it's not parasitism, it's not parasites because they do kill their host, but it's not predators in the way that we think about being predators. You know what a, re a really cool parasitoid in social, not social media, pop, pop yes. culture? I, I got in, I got in, not, not in trouble for this, but I, I, I did this comparison when I did a guest lecture in <laughs> one of the entomology classes uh, at the University of Minnesota because I was the parasitoid grad student mm -hmm. um, that was available, I guess, at the time. I don't know. And, of course, yes, the, the one that most people know that is a parasitoid that they don't know is a parasitoid is the alien from Alien. Yeah. Uh, the chest burst scene where the guy, he has a face sucker and he rips it off and he thinks he's fine. And then sometime later that night... Uh, his stomach starts to growl and all of a sudden this thing bursts out of his chest and it scrampers away. Now, it's not a true parasitoid because it does emerge before it becomes an adult, but that is about as close as to parasitism in the movies as you'll <laughs> likely find. Uh, but I did show that video and I forgot to do a trigger warning and the professor came up and was like, <laughs> you put a trigger warning? Like, oh, I'm sorry. I thought they were all adults. Um, and then I was like, oh, wait. I forgot how gruesomely bloody this was uh, because I hadn't, like, watched it beforehand. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, I get it now. Oops. My bad. Uh, I should have done the Lego version. There's, like, a Lego version somewhere out there, and that's what I should have done. Uh, I, I, I do think about that at least once a month. So thank you. <laughs> Sean, for making me relive that. Uh, this is your once in December. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, so anyway, but back to these specific wasps. The mammirids are parasitoids of insect eggs, which might explain why mammirids are so small, because they attack the smallest life stage of other insects, the egg stage. In order to have an offspring that can fit inside of an insect egg, you yourself has to be rather small. What happens is a parasitoid female lays their eggs or lays their eggs within the eggs of an unsuspecting insect. They hatch, they eat the contents of the egg, they pupate, they emerge as adults. Now, when they actually emerge, they only live for a few days. And females, they have to either find a male which a male might hatch in the same brood depending on the female that laid them, which I'll get into, and mate with the male, fly around to a few eggs that she can find in that area. I mean, they're not flying great distance, distances, right? They, they're literally flying maybe if, within the same plant if they're lucky. Males, they hatch, they mate with the female, and then later that day, they're dead. They don't live very long at all. Their sole purpose in life is to mate bring out some genetic diversity uh, in the population and die. And so the females, if they do mate, great. But females of parasitoid wasps generally don't have to actually mate with the male. They experience something called parthenogenesis, which just means that they essentially lay clones of themselves 
So all the offspring that they will have if they don't mate with a male will be just copies of herself and therefore all females which can hatch and then have copies of themselves thus an entire group of just females and every once in a while if a female is mated with a male she has a chance to have males and so the genetic diversity continually cycles through uh, through the population so that they're not just the, all the same wasp essentially uh, but yeah, either way, life is short and intense for these animals. Uh, but there's one more extra fact I want to talk about. I didn't know this beforehand, but I came across it in a few articles and I was like, wow, this is actually cool. Scientists have been puzzled as to how they, how these animals get down to this size. Now, there are bacteria, there are amoebas that are actually larger than these wasps are. Now, an amoeba and a bacteria are a single-celled organism. My mirrored wasp is made up of thousands and thousands of cells. So their cells have shrunk down to the smallest possible version of a cell. One way that they're able to do this is it's easier to get a regular cell to be that size. The hard part is to get a neuron to that size because, like all insects, they have a nervous system. They have to in order to fly, in order to lay eggs, in order to mate, in order to interact with the environment. They have to have a nervous system. But the problem is, and has been, is how do you get a nervous system shrunk down because of one organelle, and that's the nucleus. And somehow, and they don't know how, but somehow these wasps have evolved away in adulthood from having neurons that have nucleus in them. So they can keep their small stature in adulthood and have a like a well-developed enough nervous system to do the things that they need to do. Now, when they're when they're larvae, they have a nervous system with nuclei because they're pretty simple organisms. They just eat. That's all. But when they pupate, their nervous system grows. But at the same time, their nucleus they they dissolve and they shrink away and they there's there's no nucleus and it's the only animal that is known that have neurons that have no nucleus that's it just the mimirid wasps i was like i was just kind of blown away by that fact yeah that's uh, crazy so, yeah I'll, I'll end it there but yeah mimirids tiny little creatures the smallest of the small dude how does that even work i don't know well the idea is like when when you i think when you're that small you want to, you know, you know, you want to be that small, but you don't live for very long. So it's not like you're replacing uh, proteins because that's what the nucleus contains DNA, which codes for proteins. And if you're not living long enough to need to replace proteins at that level, especially in your neurons, there's no point in having DNA within those cells, similar to our red blood cells. They don't have DNA. They don't have a nucleus and therefore no DNA, just a waste of space. So uh, just get rid of it because you're not going to live long enough to get any of the benefits of having that DNA in your neuron. Or, Whoa. or they use PIM particles. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very good. I would love to see what what would happen if you threw a PIM particle on a mimirid to see how small you could get it. Oh, it would go into the uh, the other dimension the sub- or whatever. But like just by you, but that is like when you constantly shrink oh but if you just hit it with one of the little discs yeah already there is it just like already already there (laughs) so for those of our our listeners uh that don't know what's a what's a pim particle (laughs) ant-man the movie it's it's in marvel it's like they it's how ant-man shrinks and grows and it's like the scientific discovery that okay dr pim creates i don't know if that's the way to say it discovers creates yeah Okay, yeah. that it's makes sh- that makes more sense. Molecule, Thank so. you for uh, yeah. telling our listeners uh, what that, yeah. what that is. <laughs> are, are you one of our listeners in this moment? <laughs> I, I am listening. Yeah. Now, hold on, Zach. Um, I know you're not like a Marvel fan, and that's fine. I'm not, not a Marvel How fan. A... I just haven't seen every you're... single Ant Man movie or any. But that's Ant-Man. the first one. <laughs> well, okay, yeah, that, well that either way, that brings me to my point is you're an entomologist and you didn't see Ant-Man? Like I understand Ant-Man 2 and 3, I don't know how many are out now. I think it's just two. Just two. Um 
the second one but he's in three. much less he's in three but he or is four in three. movies yeah 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 um the other ones the first one has a lot of ants in it so as an entomologist i highly recommend you watch it mm-hmm. um it's worth the watch alone for antony <laughs> for ants <laughs> antony i have a question spencer i have an answer uh maybe what what parasitizes these guys are there any hyper parasites or hyper parasitoids hyper whoa, whoa, whoa hold up what what okay so uh okay parasitism is what i studied in grad school and you just brought up one of my favorite components of parasitism which is hyper parasitism which that means um uh, a hyper parasitoid is a parasitoid of a parasitoid. Oh, what? At the, like I, I'm sure there are my myriads that I. Well, I'm not sure there. There might be my myriads that are parasitoids of other my myriads. When you're the smallest of the small, like nothing is gonna get you. <laughs> like is is it? But what if it's like the opposite of Star Wars, where there's always a bigger fish? Is there always a smaller wasp? I mean, as far as we know, so uh, this the specific species that I talked about was discovered in 1997. That's been 20, what, 26 years ago now, almost. So there might be smaller ones that we just don't know about. But I think physics almost stops working when you go smaller than that. Like, mm-hmm. like it just doesn't work. So having a smaller and smaller parasitoid just doesn't work. Now... It just might be that the parasitoids are competing with each other at that level, and you can have hyperparasitism at that same smallness level, but you're not going to get any smaller. So you're not going to have a parasitoid that parasitizes the egg of the smallest mimirid. Gotcha. Darn. Yeah. But I will I, I will tell you, Sean, and maybe we'll do another parasitoid episode, I'm assuming, in the future. Mm-hmm. But there have been five levels of hyperparasitism discovered no way maybe more so a parasitoid of a parasitoid of a parasitoid of a parasitoid of a parasitoid gosh <laughs> does it does it go in a circle does the first one hit the, <laughs> the one on the air <clears throat> it it might it might that'd be cool <laughs> yeah i again there's we don't know a whole lot of, about about all these uh, and we don't know what level of parasitism ends at and if it goes full circle, that'd be great. I, I remember, uh, I don't know if it was in grad school or I knew this before then, um, where, you know, for a while there, everybody's like the biggest or the, the, the most amount of species in a scientific order, it's Coleoptera, the beetles. There's, there's so many beetles. And, mm-hmm. and then, but now the, there's the argument of like, well, Hymenoptera has the parasitoids and there's almost a parasitoid for every other species out there. So it's like if there's a, if there's a parasite or a parasitoid of every beetle species, then there's definitely more Hymenopteran species. Yeah, I've I've heard the same thing as well. Yeah, I mean it the two comments juxtapose each other. Mm-hmm very well i doubt that there's like a one for one for every species because some of them are yeah. like generalist and not necessarily specialists but and i think that is that is the reason why there are more beetles oh you still think so there are many. more beetles yeah i think there's just too many generalists gotcha okay okay i don't yeah i just think it's a fun discussion i don't have an answer to either side i love parasitoids yeah but you know i'm biased obviously so tiny little creatures yeah. tiny 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 all right, Zach, I'm looking forward to yours. All right. Well, coming in from Cuba, I have the cutest little bird that you probably haven't seen unless you're actually from Cuba. And then, even then, you probably didn't even know that you saw a bird. Uh, but rather, you thought you saw a bee that buzzed by you. And the aptly named bee hummingbird, Melisuga helenae, is commonly mistaken as a bee as it darts around bromeliads in the tropical forest of Cuba. And it measuring at just five and a half centimeters, so like two inches, and that's from like tip of the beak to the tail is two inches. And weighing in at a whopping two ounces, this is <laughs> the bee hummingbird is the smallest bird on the planet. To put this into perspective, 
This teeny tiny bird is shorter than the length of your finger and weighs less than a dime. So, <laughs> um, I know all of us are pretty familiar or probably pretty familiar if you've paid attention to your backyard with uh, rufous or ruby-throated hummingbirds. This hummingbird is half the size of those. Just Yeah, just to put it into perspective, these are teeny tiny little birds. Female bee hummingbirds, they're a little bit drab looking like, you know, females of most species of birds. But the males are really where it shines. Also like, you know, other bird species. So the males are a bluish green. They're like an iridescent blue on the body. And then the head has a green pilium, which is basically like ornithology speak for the bird's head. Uh, It has a green pilium that has pink, like really hot pink tips. Like imagine frosted tips from the early 2000s, but pink and on a bird. The biggest thing that stands out to me about this, you know, pun intended, is how tiny their eggs are and their nests. So the females will lay eggs the size of just a little coffee bean in a nest that measures one inch in diameter. Can you guys just like picture that? A bird laying little coffee beans in a one inch bowl, essentially. It's like the cutest little thing I've ever seen. Oh, I, I'm seeing pictures of them next to bees and it's adorable. Yeah, they're <laughs> yeah. they're not a whole lot bigger than an actual bee, which is it's insane to me. Honestly, like the pictures I saw were with honeybees. You said they weighed how much? Two ounces? Yeah. It's actually oh, a little so bit they're... less, like 1.9. They they weigh more than my little uh, elephant shrews. Yeah, just like, wow. you know, like half an ounce more, not even. Yeah, everything that I read, actually, they actually mentioned elephant shrews in comparisons with bee hummingbirds. They're like, yeah, it's on the same order as the elephant shrews. But come to find out, elephant shrews are even a little bit smaller. Well, they're, they weigh less, but they are longer. Oh, They're about weird. twice as long, but way less. So they, these oh. th- these little guys, these hummingbirds, must be like powerhouses or something. Like you know. Yeah, that was actually another thing I read. Is like <laughs> these these things are kind of muscular for how big they are, which That's I'm just like imagining like end. a jacked out <laughs> hummingbird <laughs> with like little man syndrome or something. That's basically what it is. Like they're just darting around. <laughs> like look at me, look at me. Anyways. After the the female lays her little coffee beans, the chicks will hatch around three weeks later and then another three weeks after that, they've already got their flight feathers and they're heading out on their own. So it's kind of like the the R species that you were talking about earlier, Sean, but also a little bit on the K side with only one to two chicks at a time. Mm -hmm. So there's not very many of them, but I guess you couldn't really fit very many in a one inch (laughs) in a one inch nest. Like, or, even or if they like, are coffee beans. <laughs> or inside the, of the mom. Like, she probably can't fit that many eggs. <laughs> yeah, honestly, like, I was kind of thinking about it. Like, a coffee bean seems kind of big to just, like, push out of a bird that big. I wonder in, like, yeah. rel- rel- like relative comparison of, like, the size of their egg coming out of them compared to a kiwi and the eggs they lay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think kiwis are in a whole nother. <laughs> okay. I, I didn't know if these guys are so small it would be comparable. Yeah, it might. I mean, it, it, it'd be... Pretty close. Pretty close. Yeah. Gosh, they're so small. They're so cute. Okay. But yeah, like most hummingbirds, these little guys are able to... They're able to hover and fly backwards, which is actually unique in the bird world. There's no other bird that is capable of this. I think the only other like animals that I can think of that can both hover and fly backward is like dragonflies. Uh, is there any more? Moths can they? Oh yeah, they can hover, can't they? Oh, they yeah. Yep, the hummingbird moth <clears throat> yeah. is really good at oh, it. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there's only like a few things that can do it. So hummingbirds aerial acrobatic abilities actually come from their wing anatomy because they are the only birds in the world whose wings are only attached to the body at the shoulder joint. This actually made me curious about how other birds' wings are connected to the body, if not by the shoulder joint. I mean, I've been pheasant hunting and cleaned the birds that we got, and I don't know where else that it would be attached. And, like, you think of a chicken wing, too. Like, you're eating chicken wings 
that shoulder joint is where I always imagined it being, but I guess it's not. Or it's not just the huh. shoulder joint. Like, there's another attachment somewhere. What, where is it? I don't know. <laughs> I oh. couldn't really find how, you know, bird wings are articulated to the body. That's a that would be another thing to look for in the future. <laughs> I wonder if it's not necessarily like the bone structure, more maybe this like the skin structure almost. Mm. Yeah, that's that was kind of like the one thing I could think of is like birds kind of have like this really stretchy part on where the wing yeah. attaches. Like it it doesn't just attach at the shoulder; it kind of stretches down like the lats. Yeah, and I wonder if that like is tucked. Uh, as close as possible because that would definitely give you more freedom to move your wing around in different directions if you didn't have that extra even just little flap like the little like like the armpit flap is that what you're the arm yeah the armpit flap yeah yeah that actually makes sense maybe that's what it was and that's why i couldn't find a a different bone attaching it when you mentioned like chicken wing i was like oh yeah they have like that little armpit flap yeah i was like maybe that's it but i don't know interesting yeah okay yeah but there's another aspect of hummingbird flight that i'm sure anybody who has ever seen one has noticed and that's how fast their wings beat with hummingbirds especially like they're beating many times a second and the smaller the hummingbird goes the faster those wings beat to keep it in the air bee hummingbirds are among the fastest because they're the smallest they're clocking in around 80 beats per second (laughs) that's about 79 more than the amount of frames i get when i'm loading into an art cave (laughs) (laughs) good one even when art's Uh, working good like that's another 20 beats per second than the frames i would be getting now i mean that's where the muscle comes in right and that's where their density must come from there's yeah oh i just probably well well i was just gonna ask maybe like you know, I, I remember the old adage that hummingbirds can't land because if they don't eat for two seconds, then they'll die because their metabolisms are so fast. Now, of course, that's not true because they have to sleep <laughs> um, and they're not active all the time. But I'm wondering, like, how many calories are these things burning just in a given minute? Oh, just consuming I don't... straight jet fuel. I mean, yeah. I mean kind um, of. They, they they eat nectar <laughs> like i you know there's there's so much to say about human evolution well not even human just like mammals in that we our muscles wear out so quickly because our bodies just run out of oxygen and therefore can't create as much atp and then we use lactic uh or lactose or whatever and builds up lactic acid and then our muscles get sore and but animals like the hummingbird they just keep flying. I mean, granted, they're continually eating, but they don't seem to get tired. I don't know. It just fascinates me. That is really cool. I don't have any notes on this, but one thing I do know about hummingbirds is that they can slow down. They can land. And if there's not enough food in the area, which I mean, the, a main component of their diet is nectar, which talk about jet fuel, that's straight sugar hitting your bloodstream. <laughs> yeah. But hummingbirds are actually able to go into a state called torpor, where essentially they choose to hibernate for a little bit. So if there's not enough flowers around for them, or they just want to take a break, they can slow their heart rate down and slow all of their bodily processes down to a point where they're hardly burning any calories at all. And then just kind of take a break, whether that's because there's not enough food around for them to keep going. And then they just need to wait or maybe it's too cold out or something and the system isn't super high functioning in the cold. But they, they are able to go into a state of torpor. So they slow down. Huh. I want, so I wonder how often they have to do that. I mean, if you're living in Cuba, I can't imagine that, you know, weather is super fluctuating. Maybe it gets a, maybe there are a few colder snaps in winter, but yeah, I wonder how fast can they enter into that torpor stage? Yeah, I don't know. I think they can do it pretty quickly, like on command basically, but I'm not I'm not an ornithologist, so don't take my word for it. I'm sure that's not even super well studied uh, at something like something like this because they're so small anyway and being endemic uh, hard to 
study just in general yeah especially for you know american scientists and the u.s <laughs> cuba relationships there <laughs> at least yeah, american no, scientists don't, or americans in general don't have a great idea of bee hummingbirds maybe with our own hummingbirds there's a a better idea we're, we're probably sending more scientists and stuff there now right like relationships are better yeah, it's a little better yeah. i think it's legal now <laughs> Yeah. They, they lifted the embargo, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's yeah. it's legal to go there now. Well, you, I, I had friends go there in college for with the college, so it wasn't illegal to go there. Oh, really? I always yeah. thought it was like kind of illegal to go there, and like if you wanted to go, you had to like, you know, make a pit stop in Mexico and then take a plane from Mexico to Cuba. Yeah, I don't think it was illegal because we took our school would take people there on like field trips. Oh, don't listen to me then. <laughs> well, I thought maybe because I know that during the Obama administration, there was some major changes to relations with Cuba. Oh. And that would have been before our time. Well, no, that would have been during our time in college. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that could be. We'll look it up later. That could be a different podcast Either. altogether right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right there. Politics. <laughs> I don't think we're... Yeah. But the politics of Poli- science. Political history um, in the Caribbean. Bay of Pigs, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Now, back to this hummingbird, uh, this bee hummingbird. Yeah, back to the bee hummingbird. More than the cool facts that I just listed about. What is also known as the smallest known dinosaur, extinct or extant, meaning dead or alive, bee hummingbirds play important roles in their ecosystems. They're more than just like part of the food web, you know, like they're, they are prey items for snakes and spiders, but more importantly, they are great pollinators. For any of our listeners who aren't familiar with hummingbirds, like I said earlier, a main component of their diet is actually nectar from flowers. And with the frenetic pace that hummingbirds operate at, they need to drink absolutely excessive quantities of nectar. For bee hummingbirds, this equates uh, over half of their body weight every single day. Which, like, I mean, they only weigh two ounces, so they drink an ounce of sugar water a day. But, like, think of your own body weight. Like, I weigh 170. Can you imagine... How much sugar water I would have to I don't I would throw up so hard. <laughs> have you ever done like seen or heard of anybody doing like the gallon challenge with a gallon of milk? I've I'm lucky to know nobody that has attempted that. Oh, uh or at least have okay, never mind. I know one person who's attempted I, that. I did not personally attempt it, but I do I did watch. I did watch. It, it it's over pretty quickly <laughs> you don't yeah, you don't okay. get very far I, no gross I, I don't think our our stomachs can even hold that and we can't digest it fast enough to to drink that much that fast yeah but these birds are going through it like nobody's business um so to get this absolutely insane amount of nectar bee hummingbirds are estimated to be visiting around 1,500 different plants every single day. And with each plant they visit, they're transferring pollen from one to the other every time they get food from a flower. And they're such important pollinators in the ecosystem that there are some plant species that have actually co-evolved specifically with hummingbirds. I couldn't confirm completely that the bee hummingbird is like the sole specialist pollinators of these flowers, but some of the sources I read said that bee hummingbirds are usually found around the forest edge where lots of bromeliads are found. And in the wild, bromeliads are often epiphytic plants, meaning that they they don't root into the soil like a normal plant, but rather they grow on the branches of taller trees and that's so they can you know get up high get some sunlight catch some rainwater and they basically grow up in the canopy uh they're pretty common at any plant store you'll visit and they're really cool looking especially their flowers if i were you guys anybody listening at home right now or in their car or wherever uh, i would highly recommend well not if you're driving but i would highly recommend (laughs) looking up pictures of bromeliad flowers okay can i can i tell you about a cool bromeliad that I saw. Yes, living in Puerto yes, Rico. please. I love bromeliads. So they were everywhere, uh, and just like Zach said, up usually up on the branches of trees or in the you know in the crook uh, of the tree. But occasionally, 
you'd find some that were growing on the vines that were growing on trees. And we found this one. It was about halfway up the mountain. And there was a single vine, thick vine, that had been growing down. And a bunch of bromeliads had just grown up somehow attaches up to the vine and then more bromeliads and then more bromeliads and more more and more until there was a literal it was probably seven foot around ball of bromeliads hanging from this single vine i mean this the thing was so big it was like a wrecking ball like you could push it oh my but god but you had to like lean into it to push it but it was free it was free swinging like uh, one so vine cool. hanging up everything I yeah want, and uh, i want uh, that hanging in was, my living room yeah uh, yeah uh, it Could was you imagine cool miley cyrus <laughs> right like swinging in, in on that Bromeliad. <laughs> yes <laughs> yes i can i'm going i'm going to do that i'm gonna hang that yeah. in my living room and just swing around on it well odds oh i'm sure it was probably taken down in hurricane maria but Maybe there's another that, one. That just means I don't have to take it down myself. There you go. It's somewhere out there. <laughs> yeah. So. It's following. It's like following no, leave no trace, like dead and down. Dead and down. Love it. So hopefully uh, it's but you were talking about the flowers specifically, Zach. Yeah. So bromeliads is like a whole family of plants. So it's pretty diverse and there's a huge variety of shapes and colors. But one thing I found is that a lot of them have red flowers, which is an attractive color to hummingbirds, and long tubular flowers that are perfectly shaped for the long slender bill of a hummingbird to drop in and just slurp up some of that nectar. This ensures both that there's no other insects or like other pollinating animals that can take the nectar from the hummingbird and this encourages that the hummingbird visits these plants over and over because it's a more sure source of food for them. So they're going to all 1500 of their plants per day they're like they see a bromeliad and they're like oh i need to go to that one because that one's made for me so they're going bromeliad to bromeliad transferring all of the pollen everywhere getting those that genetic diversity high and pollinating the entire forest so yeah that's what i got on the the bee hummingbird and i barely knew anything about this bird other than it being the smallest one in the world before i i did this research and this actually gave me some more appreciation for it Probably not going to Cuba anytime soon, but I'll look out the window at my own hummingbird feeder with a little more joy and understanding and appreciation. So I hope you do too. Yeah. Uh, nice. Growing up in Colorado, we'd get them occasionally as they would kind of migrate through. And I've always loved hummingbirds. I see them up in northern Minnesota a lot too because they, they summer there. Yeah. I mean, they're just great creatures. There's... Every I don't know anybody who dislikes hummingbirds. I hate them. They're just <laughs> no. I'm just kidding. I know you're trolling me, Sean. <laughs> no, I I spent a lot of time uh, growing up at my grandparents' house, and I'd sit on the porch with my grandma, and we'd watch the hummingbirds come to our feeders. They held a special place in my heart. I actually have some cool memories about hummingbirds too. Not like bee hummingbirds, obviously, but. My first backpacking trip ever, I was in the Goat Rocks of Washington State with my cousin. I thought I was, you know, hot stuff being a, a college athlete and then got my butt absolutely handed to me in the mountains. We we hiked, I remember it not even being that far, like five miles, and I was just like dead. <laughs> uh, one, not used to like obviously the elevation gain or being in the mountains or anything, but not used to carrying everything with me too. So we got to our campsite and I was like, I'm going to take a nap now. I am done. I'm done for right now. I go, I, I take probably like a 20 minute nap and I wake up to the sound of just going, just going right by the tent. Yeah, basically <laughs> sounding like lightsabers. That wasn't my first thought, though. My first thought was, those are some big-ass bees out there. Like, oh, my God, <laughs> what's going on? Come to find out, I step out of the tent looking for these giant bumblebees. I realize they're hummingbirds just darting by the tent, just going zoom, zoom, zoom past my tent because we had set up camp in this field of paintbrush. <laughs> And that's a, another 
uh, plant family that specifically kind of evolved to be pollinated by hummingbirds. So they were they were just going flitting in and out of these paintbrushes, and it was it was beautiful. Uh, one of the I th- I would say to this day the most beautiful picture that I've ever taken, and the only one that I've ever blown up and framed was taken right there, in the oh, in the goat rocks, know. and I got I got a picture of hummingbirds flitting in and out of the paintbrush. That's Anyways, cool. that's my that's my story on hummingbirds. Well, they uh, we also have a uh, special, I guess, connection with hummingbirds when we uh, had to collect data on them in California. They were kind of like the oh, yeah. uh, once in a while, like add, collect this data too if you see them type deal. When we were uh, yeah, we were doing that for hummingbirds and monarchs. Like if you see one, just write it down and we'll, yeah. <laughs> we'll tally them up later. Yeah, we we're, were looking for bees, but uh, every now and then we'd see hummingbirds. It was a fun little treat, I guess. Yeah, and I have a quiz for you guys. Where in the world will you find the most diversity of hummingbirds? Probably somewhere near the equator. Yeah, hmm. Central America, Costa Rica. Are you sure about that? <laughs> you... Do you remember... Uh, Talking to a lovely woman in a retirement facility. Uh, oh, Arizona <laughs> pool, yeah, in Arizona. Oh, and they oh also have God. the most diversity of bees there. I remember we we talked about bee diversity in Arizona, and then Jerusalem. Oh, oh yeah, was it? Yeah, like and then hummingbirds. <laughs> yeah, and hummingbirds in like southern Arizona, like some of the most diverse. Uh, areas you'll find hummingbirds so that's really cool i forgot about that part we also the three of us have a good memory that we share with hummingbirds not just you two um no so just us know. okay take that away from me <laughs> yeah yep, just us and and sue the t-rex it's okay okay yeah, too bad you weren't that's... there spencer I was not invited uh, you, you guys can no. do things in minnesota this winter without me that's true and we will uh, <laughs> smallest of the small well i i'm assuming this episode will be released sometime after the holidays so i hope everybody who's listening in had a good holiday season i'm assuming this might even be released probably after new year so this might be the first episode of 2024 yeah so yeah i guess welcome to the new year yeah Uh, so we're recording this before christmas uh so I will wish both of you uh, Merry Christmas and uh, Happy New Year. And as usual, how, how? How, how, how? how?